Here now a reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning with verse 7. I'll be reading from the New International Version. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Back in 2015, a survey was conducted of more than 4,000 people who had more than $250,000 in the bank. Approximately half of these people had more than a million in asset, and 40% of these people had more than $5 million in the bank. They were all asked, do you consider yourselves rich? And a vast majority said no. When I read this data, it blows my mind and raises an important question. How much does a person need these days to think of himself as rich? To put things in perspective, as of 2019, more than 10% of Americans live below the poverty line and the median household income is around $68,700. Most have very little, if any, savings, and of those who do have a savings account, only about half have enough stashed away to cover three months of expenses. So how can a person have $5 million in the bank and not consider himself wealthy? There was a study done back in 2008 where people were asked, what does it mean to be rich? When answering this question, they tended to point to a certain level of wealth in comparison to their own. For example, many people with an annual income of around $100,000 did not see themselves as rich, but they thought that those making twice as much were. Again, they determined wealth by comparison. 
But a more recent survey shows a big change in the way that people understand wealth. When asked the same question, what does it mean to be rich, instead of comparing their income with others who were better off, they defined it as having no financial constraints on activities. In other words, wealth has been redefined to mean something like financial omnipotence, the ability to freely or compulsively spend money without worrying about the money ever running out. While these understandings of wealth differ, they do have one thing in common. No matter how much money a person has, they never actually see themselves as rich. A cursory reading of the New Testament letters written by Paul reveals a very different understanding. For example, in writing to the Corinthian Christians about an offering that he was collecting for the poor in Jerusalem, he said, For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Clearly, Paul didn't measure people's financial status in terms of what they don't have in comparison to others. He also knew how this mentality can keep people stuck in a miserable and sometimes morally bankrupt life. In our better moments, we know that it's not good to fall into the comparison trap, especially when it comes to material possessions, because this is a primary way that we are infected with greed, that deadly vice that makes us feel as if we never have enough. Instead of seeing, appreciating, and delighting in all the wonderful gifts we already have, greed blinds us to all our blessings, causes us to focus on what we don't have, and keeps us in a state of perpetual dissatisfaction, which makes it almost impossible to feel gratitude. This is problematic because almost every wisdom tradition known to humanity says that you cannot be truly happy without a sense of gratitude. So by robbing us of gratitude, greed robs us of the joy of life. Furthermore, as we constantly pursue more, we tend to accumulate debts and live beyond our means. As our income grows, so do our financial obligations, which leads to increasing levels of stress and anxiety as we try to meet those growing obligations. If we're not careful, the dynamics of addiction can come into play, and the very money we thought we were using to make us happy is now using us and making us unhappy. <laughs> Enslaved to greed, envy, debt, and anxiety, some of the wealthiest people in the world are also the most miserable. And all of this misery stems from a certain way of thinking about wealth and relating to money. The Apostle Paul understood all of this, and there are some important lessons in what we read this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Although he does talk about money in this passage, 
It is important to remember that money is not Paul's main concern. Money in and of itself is not good or bad. It's a tool. More important is how we relate to this tool and use it, which reveals something deeper inside of us, the condition of our hearts. And that's the real issue when Christians talk about money. In other words, Paul was not trying to be the Dave Ramsey of the ancient world. No, he was more like a spiritual cardiologist. He wanted us to have a healthy heart, a generous heart like Jesus. Going back to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Paul talks about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. As I mentioned earlier, Paul is traveling all over the region, going church to church, to collect money to help some poor Christians in Jerusalem. The Christians in Macedonia have been especially generous, giving beyond their means. So Paul uses them as an example to inspire the Christians living in Corinth to give generously as well. He explains that after hearing about the needs of the poor Christians in Jerusalem, the Macedonians begged earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. You heard that right. <laughs> they weren't just willing to give, but they begged Paul to let them give. Some commentators have read this as though Paul were using the example of the Macedonians to shame the Corinthians into giving an offering. And it's possible to read verse 8, which says, I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others to support this view. But I don't think that Paul is being manipulative here, especially considering that he praises them, the, the Corinthians, for excelling in many important things, including their faith, the way they talk to each other, their knowledge, their eagerness to grow and be like Jesus, and perhaps most importantly, their love. So this just doesn't seem like shame to me. Rather, Paul is trying to encourage and inspire them to be more generous by pointing to an example of extravagant generosity. And he does this because he knows that God can work through the spiritual discipline of giving, not only to inoculate us from greed and envy and all the suffering that comes in their wake, but also to cultivate gratitude which expands our horizon of receptivity, deepens our joy, and instills a sense of purpose as we help others. Generosity gives us a heart like Jesus. As we practice generosity as a spiritual discipline, one way that God transforms us is by transforming our desire, by changing what we want. The fruit of this transformation is that we come to love as God loves and to want what God wants. 
We see this clearly in the example of the Macedonians. Their desire is to give. They want to give. They beg to give. They need to give. Why? Because generosity has become a part of who they are at the deepest level. They understand giving to be a privilege because having something to give means that one already has more than enough. And being deprived of the privilege of giving is for them like being a fish out of water. So, in addition to helping the poor Christians in Jerusalem, Paul wants the Corinthians to experience the same kind of transformation enjoyed by the Macedonians, which leads to joy. So, he encourages, he inspires, he exhorts them to be generous so they don't miss the joy and blessing of giving. While Paul uses the Macedonians as an example of extravagant generosity, he knows that their primary motivator is the grace they had already generously received from Jesus. He writes, For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. In other words, Jesus left the riches of heaven to walk among us as an impoverished servant so that we might find the riches of faith in this life and the riches of heaven in the next. It is in response to this divine expression of generosity that motivates the Macedonians to give. And as they do, God uses their giving to facilitate their transformation of heart. In our scripture reading this morning, Paul exhorts the Christians in Corinth, in Corinth in hopes that the same grace will motivate and transform them too. And by extension, not just them, but us. Many people have a hard time thinking about giving as a spiritual discipline, as a regular practice like prayer or worship that helps us become more like Jesus and, consequently, experience more joy. We typically don't think much about giving until we see a need or someone asks. Then we run a calculation in our minds to determine if we have a surplus. And if we do, then we might consider giving some of it away. But waiting for an ask and making a decision based on a possible surplus is not what Paul is urging us to do. According to the survey I mentioned at the beginning of this message, the way that many of us think about wealth, including people who make six figures, prevents us from ever thinking we have a surplus. The undercurrent of our age is that we never have enough, let alone extra to spare for others in need. So if this is our calculation, it is unlikely that we will ever give on a regular basis to help others, which is precisely what we need to do to be inoculated from greed, envy, and materialism, and to experience the joy of generosity. Clearly, what Paul has in mind is different. It is not giving out of a big surplus, 
but giving out of a desire to be like Jesus. It would be easy at this point to focus on money, especially giving a 10% tithe to the church. And while this is an important spiritual discipline that God uses to accomplish the mission of Jesus through our ministries, generosity is a much larger matter. Yes, we give money, but we also give things like time, talent, attention, affection, acceptance, affirmation, understanding, empathy, and grace. Are we generous or stingy with these things? When Paul calls for generosity, he's not just talking about money. He is encouraging us to give of ourselves in ways that reflect the genuineness of our love in response to the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we should nurture generosity of spirit in every area of life. Sometimes the need for a generous spirit can get overwhelmed by the daily pressures of life. Peter Chen, who blogs on a Christianity Today site called Third Culture, tells of being in a busy grocery store, a place he hated to go because it was always so crowded. But he needed a can of chicken stock. After grabbing the can from a shelf, he headed for the checkout lines, looking for the one he could navigate through most quickly. He settled on aisle four, which was limited to 15 items or less, and where only two customers stood between him and his escape. <laughs> he soon decided, however, that he'd chosen the wrong line. The couple at the front was apparently having some problem with their purchase. The clerk removed items from their grocery bags as the pair dug through their wallet. Chen says, I pursed my lips and peered around the customer in front of me to catch a glimpse of the couple who had so perfectly sabotaged my exit from this purgatory. I could see little of them except their dark curly hair and ill-kept clothes. Their heads were down as they continued to fiddle with their pocketbook, and the attendant took more canned items off the belt and placed them in a cart next to her. I didn't really know what was going on, but frankly, I didn't care. They had more than 15 items and shouldn't have been there in the first place. I had no compassion on people who couldn't do something as simple as making a purchase at a grocery store. He continues, I rolled my eyes as the attendant took their final item off the belt. Finally, the couple shuffled on their way, heads down, their shopping bag empty, swinging at their side. All that time, all for nothing. I shook my head in disbelief and cast a disapproving look at them as they walked away. After they left, the man ahead of Chen in line made his purchases quickly, so it wasn't long before it was Chen's turn. As he paid for his can, he saw that the couple had been trying to buy something very specific, baby formula. Chen realized that the couple 
have probably been trying to use one of the city programs like WIC or SNAP only to learn that the type or size they were trying to purchase wasn't covered. And when they'd looked into their wallets for cash, they didn't have enough to buy even a single can of baby formula. Chen had images of a baby going hungry that night and was suddenly struck by the callousness of his own impatience. Leaving his can of chicken stock on the counter, he ran from the store hoping to find the couple so he could buy some baby formula for them. But they were gone. He ran from one end of the parking lot to the other, even jumping up periodically to see above the heads of the people around him, but with no success. Eventually, Chen went to his car and sat down in shame. He realized that it wasn't selfishness that had prevented him from helping this couple feed their baby. He would have gladly paid for the formula had he known what was happening. No, it wasn't selfishness. It was, in his own words, enslavement to my own convenience. A more generous spirit would have caused him to be more understanding of what was happening to the couple ahead of him in line. Instead of viewing them as obstacles to his quick departure from the store. Friends, Paul was absolutely right in telling the Corinthians, and by extension us, that they need to measure their generosity not against others, but against Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. My prayer this morning is that all of us may be wealthy in generosity. Then we will know when rich is rich.